Well, it's good to be with you this evening. Feels like it's cooled off a little bit. I want you to open your Bibles up to John chapter 4. I want to share with you a, new, a newer message. We looked at uh, Tuesday night. Yes, Tuesday night, we looked at John chapter 4, verses 43 through 45, which was an introduction to this passage, and it's all about Jesus' ministry uh, as he is approaching and entering into Galilee. And I want to pick up the second half of this story, story, which is verses 46 through the end of the chapter, verse uh, verse 54. And uh, it's really interesting what goes on in in this section, and any time in Bible study, I want to encourage you. Anytime in Bible study you come into a passage, you probably should take note that it's very possible, sometimes likely, that questions you have concerning the text, the author has probably not intended to answer those questions, if that makes sense. Sometimes we ask questions about a text that he never meant for us to ask that there, are, there is something absolutely significant that he's wanting to get across in a passage, and he picks and chooses the stories and the characters and the setting in order to get that message across. Are you listening to me? That's crucial. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the whole wedding at Cana, and talk to many of you about that. See, for years I always heard that the big deal at the wedding was wine. And the big question, especially for us Nazarenes, is was it alcoholic wine or was it Welch's grape juice? You know? Well... To be quite frank, it's none of your business. Because <laughs> he didn't need it. See, he doesn't answer that, man. The whole deal is not the deal with the wine. That's not what he's concerned with. See, what he's concerned with is that Jesus, now get this, enters the life of a poor Galilean couple and he uses their, their, their short, their probably lack of preparation, their lack of money. He uses their, their extreme uh, circumstance that would have been a social slur of their day in meeting their need, he uses that as an avenue to proclaim the gospel and to show that he is the fulfillment of what took place in the Old Testament. The deal is not about the wine. So tonight, as we look in the text, you're, we're going to bump across a few things that's going to make you go, hmm. But I want to talk to you what I think is the point of verses 46 through 54, which is absolutely significant. Um, I come back to, continually, the question of what does it mean to be a Christian? That is the supreme uttermost desire in my life to know what that means. And I don't know what this is going to do to your theology. I'm hoping it will stretch you. But I think that changes. See, I think if you ever stop being stretched, if you ever stop growing, if you ever stop knowing Him more intimately, you should be fearful. And that is biblical. That is John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. The danger of sin happens when you stop seeking Him. When you become satisfied with old truth. And there's no new truth. My grandma, we call her Mammy, because she's from the South. Mammy and Pappy. Pappy's no longer living. And Mammy goes to Mount Zion Wesleyan Church. And they're really neat. And I've, I've, uh, I've been there and preached there. And they had revival. And she comes home from one of the services. And I said, Mammy, how was the revival? And she looks at me and she goes, Oh. 
I grew. <laughs> She's like 80. <laughs> I'm thinking, how could you grow? You know everything. <laughs> but she looks at me and her eyes squint. She says, I grew. Are you growing? Really, are you growing? I'm talking to the oldest and wisest and most godly saint in this building. Are you growing? Are you being stretched? Are you knowing Him in a new way? <clears throat> I want that in my life. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? One of the greatest barriers of being a Christian, what I have found at least in my life, really hinges on the concept of faith. Uh, in the original language, it's the word pistuo, which is translated in three different ways. It's translated belief, faith, and trust. And they're really all interwoven. Every time that word is used, depending on the circumstance of the sentence, it might be translated a little bit different. It's even translated in trust a couple times. But the concept has to do with, it's, get this now, teens, it's not some mystical belief, intellectual assent to a doctrine or creed. That's a lot, but see, that's not what we're talking about in terms of Christianity. Being saved, believing in Jesus, is not believing that, yeah, I, I believe He died. I believe He came to this earth. Uh, I believe he, he uh, Again, I believe He died. I believe He was buried. I believe He rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. And, yeah, I believe He did miracles, and so I'm a Christian. So you can mentally agree with all that stuff and not, and not believe it, not believe, not be a believer. Does that make sense? It's going to make sense by the end of this message. Because there were many people who believed in Jesus who did not become Christians. There were many, many people who believed, what he, who believed in what he talked about and, 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 and cheered him on and, and, and sorts of things, but see, they, they missed it. One of the most difficult areas in my life is trusting people. I come from a family where we just didn't trust. My mom and dad didn't trust each other. My mom couldn't trust my dad further than she could throw him. That wasn't very far. Although my mom was pretty tough. But she couldn't trust him. I didn't trust my dad. I certainly didn't trust my sisters. I trusted my mom to a degree. But I always struggle with trust. Do you realize that that's been a huge barrier in my marriage? Did you know marriage is about being vulnerable? That God has called me to stand before my wife. Listen to me, please. That God has called me to stand before my wife and be absolutely open and vulnerable to her. And trust her. Christianity is literally, we've been singing about this, phenomenal songs. We've been singing about this. Christianity, period, point blank, is about laying your life at his feet and saying, I trust you with that. Wherever you take me, whatever you do with me, wherever I go, whatever happens to me, in any circumstance, I trust you. No matter what happens, no matter what takes place, I trust you. That's Christianity. And that is huge for some people. See, I work with teenagers who have been molested by their parents. The people whom they're supposed to trust most. I've worked with teenagers who have been lied to, have been used by church people. Hypocrites. People who are wrapped up in rules and legalism and mean and bitter and, and hateful. So I've worked with teenagers like that. And to ask them to trust me, they think... <laughs> And certainly to trust a God they cannot see. That has to make sense to us. In fact, you and I probably will, whether you really recognize it or not, will struggle with that for the rest of our lives. There are some things that Jesus asks us to trust Him in. Some things that we struggle with. I want to share this with you tonight. This is powerful truth. And I've wondered if there are certain things that maybe God has been dealing with you about this week. 
and just by chance happened to pick this and want to share it with you this evening. And maybe he wants to settle something for you tonight. I want to share it with you. It's John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. Powerful passage of Scripture. Uh, again, I'm reading out of the New International Version. Uh, and we're going to be looking at some language and some such uh, things. So if uh, you have a different translation, that's wonderful. And that'll even be a help as an interpretation. So I want to read this for us this evening. And let's ask the Lord to help us understand the truth of His Word and apply it to our lives. Once more He visited Cana in Galilee, where He had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son, say, lit, uh, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people, listen to what Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met with him with the news, met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired at the time when the son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. Father, I love you this evening. I have sensed your presence. I have opened up and I have worshipped you. And I believe that I have stood in the midst of people who are after you. Father, we've gathered together on a Friday night. And in my mind, God, in our culture, in our day, in the busyness of our week and the way we work and strive and the list of things that we have to do, I, I believe that's a sacrifice, God, to be here. I believe I'm surrounded by good people with good intentions. Father, in the name of your Son, don't let us cop out tonight. Don't, don't let us set and apply this message to someone else. Father, I'll say it again. Don't let us set, bug us, pester us convict us. In the name of Jesus, don't let me sit and look at a teen and apply this to him. Where, where, does this want to where, where do you want to change my life through the truth that's revealed in this passage? Where am I not trusting you? Where am I not leaning on you? Where do I peer at you out of the corner of my eye? In an untrusting fashion. We want you to have your way tonight, Lord. Move as you see fit. And of course, God will give you all the praise. And we ask these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, again, what John has done in this passage, and really want to share this with you, is verses 43 through 45 is kind of an introduction. And it's really, and we looked at it this Tuesday night, it's kind of a jog uh, as you, uh, to set your mindset as to what's going to take place when he gets in Galilee. Jesus looks over his, to his disciples in verses 43 through 45. They're on their way from Samaria to Galilee. We're unsure of the time frame. Sometime during that time, Jesus emphatically, you hear me? Jesus on purpose, pointed looks to his disciples and says, listen, I'm telling you, read my lips. 
Look at the expression on my face. I'm telling you, you can count on it. I'm telling you that a prophet has no honor in his own country. I'm telling you that. I'm just telling you. Before we ever get there, in the midst of all that takes place, they're not going to honor me. I'm telling you. Because a prophet doesn't have honor. Uh, a prophet has honor except in his own country. I'm telling you, they're not going to honor me. And of course, as we looked at uh, the passage, and as we looked at this group of people that he's referring to, the Galileans have really fallen short. Man, I don't, man, I don't want this to happen in my life. I don't want this to happen in my life. I don't want to get caught up in the hype and the religious duties of camp meeting. I don't want that in my life. I'm scared, just to share this with you, to be open with you, I'm scared to death to have kids. You know why? Because they're going to be churched to death. And that scares me to death. That somehow in the midst of this building, they're going to miss him. And you may think that's crazy, but it happens every day. This group here, the Galileans, from his own town, missed him. How could that happen, man? How, how could that happen? How could someone come to church their entire life? How could someone be around Jesus himself from his own town? Be in the temple, see the things they did. Follow him the way they followed him and miss the whole deal. See, how could that happen? That is frightful in my life. That's, that makes me frightened about my kids someday. See, I don't know how to deal with that. Because I see it point blank right in front of me in this passage. And so Jesus is so... He's, he's not angry, you understand. He's not mad. He's, he's so disappointed. And, and kids if, and little ones, if you can get this, he just shrugs his shoulders. And, and if you could picture, picture his response. And, and, and Jesus just looks at the people and there's this sigh of, oh, there's so much more. You're missing the big deal of what this thing is about. He's so disappointed in the Galileans. Now... This is the attitude coming into this passage. And what this, our passage tonight, verses 46 through 54, 46 to the end of that chapter, is that what Jesus does is really interesting because he contrasts, and we find this in the scriptures oftentimes, but he contrasts the Galileans. Now, other words, he sets them up, and there's a picture of them. You and I understand who the Galileans are. We've already uh, looked at this on Tuesday. So we have a good picture of who the Galileans are, and he contrasts them with someone else. And we find this in the scriptures. We take someone like a, a group like the Galileans who are dead wrong. They've missed it. They're, they're, they're not the right ones. Uh, they should be. Uh, they're focused in the opposite direction. They're not catching on to what Jesus wants them to catch on. So he contrasts them with someone who is getting it right. Which is really strange because Jesus picks a royal official. Which in our minds, and especially in their minds, that would be the last person you would expect to get it right. That'd be the last person you would expect to, to get, on the, right, to get right, on the right page with Jesus. And he does this all the time. Uh, for instance, the Good Samaritan. That's an oxymoron. In our day, it'd be like the Good Baptist. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Easy. I was a Baptist, was a Nazarene. Nothing wrong with Baptist. Just thought I'd try to make you laugh. You were looking pretty pathetic, so I thought I'd make you laugh. Nothing wrong with that. You're Baptist, forgive me, okay? I'll pick on someone else. For the, I'll, pick on our, I'll pick on the Nazarenes before the night's over, which is really easy to do. So, uh, but you understand, uh, he contrasts them. He contrasts them to the Good Samaritan. And they, they th Samaritan was a derogatory term. It was a, it was a slanderous term that they placed on other Jews. No one wanted to be called a Samaritan. You'd rather, I'd rather you call me a dog than a Samaritan. 
See, that's the idea. And, and Jesus contrasts the good Samaritan with people who you think would have it right, which means the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel and the Jews and those, those types. And he does that here in this passage. And he does that with a royal official. Now, what he's talking about here in this whole, the whole thing centers on uh, the scene of miraculous signs and wonders. Now, the royal official, really quickly, there's... The only time he's mentioned in the Gospel of John is right here. And it's likely to probably make the assumption that the royal official was not a Jew. Meaning he was a royal official, he was in a governing household. He was in a political household. And since he's from this area, he was probably in Herod's household. He was probably in Herod's court. So he was. And there's no evidence that he's a Jew. There's no evidence. Now get this, okay? There's no evidence that he's interested whatsoever in what Jesus has to offer. Listen to what happens. It says, verse 46, Once more he visited Canaan, Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official, it gives us some information about his boy, whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him for one purpose. Get this. He went to him for one purpose, to beg him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Here's the setting. He come and begged him, hey, come heal my boy. My boy's sick, come heal my boy. And the, the language there uh, is in the imperfect tense, which may not mean much to you, but it's really significant in the passage because it means it's an, it's, it's an uncompleted action, which means the focus of the words is that this guy just didn't come and say, please heal my son. He came and he continually begged him to come and heal his son. And the focus of the, pack, uh, the passage is on this guy coming and begging and pleading with Jesus. He's grabbing him by the arms. He's shaking him back and forth. He, he, he's, he's staying in his path. And Jesus continually probably walks around him. And this guy will not get away. He will not get, leave him alone. He won't go away. He's constantly begging, hey, come and heal my son who's close to death. Now Jesus says something. Get this. Jesus says something that's kind of odd. It's the royal official who's speaking to Jesus. But Jesus just doesn't only speak to the royal official. His language is plural. Listen to what he says. Unless you people, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The you is plural. And so he speaks and he lumps, he lumps this guy in with all the other Galileans. And he says, unless you people, the guy's talking to him, he's talking to everybody. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus said, you'll never believe. Which is really a, a, a criticism. That what you're after is signs and wonders. But listen to what this guy says. This is really fascinating. The royal official looks at him and said, sir, come down before my, my child dies. Doesn't care what Jesus said. I haven't come, in, in the royal official's mind, I haven't come for, uh, for your doctrine. I don't care about these Galileans. I certainly don't care about your miraculous signs and wonders. I don't care about the significance of who you are. I'm not into your preaching. Here's what I want from you. I want you to come and heal my boy. He's sick. Jesus is talking about the Galileans. Boy, they're never going to believe. The guy says, I don't want to believe. Hello? I don't care. My, my kid's sick. Would you come down and heal him? He's not interested. He's not a Jew. He's not of their faith. This guy probably is a Roman. He's a royal official. There's no evidence whatsoever that he's not. And he's not interested in what the rest of the Jews are. So a con what is contrast with these Galileans is this fella who's not interested in their faith. 
He's not interested in what they're interested in. He plants his feet firmly in front of Jesus and says, Hey, I'm talking to you. I want you to come down. I've heard about you down in Canaan and the water that was great and the wine. Yeah, I want you to come and I want you to hear my, hear my boy, my son. He's close to death. And Jesus looks at him and he says in verse 50, You may go. Your son will live. And will live is kind of misleading because it's not future. He looks at his boy and he says, Your son lives. The will live is misleading in the English. I don't know why they put that there. But Jesus says, listen, you may go. Your son lives. Is that what you, if, that what you've, if that is what you have come for, I'm just telling you, you may go. Your son lives. What does the guy say? Appreciate you. Talk to you later. And walks on down the road. That's the story. That's what he tells us. And the remainder of the stories about him coming back and seeing his servant, his servant saying, your boy's healed. And the guy goes, yes, great. That's what I wanted. And they begin to talk about some things. And some interesting things happen. But this is, that, that's the blunt of the story. Now, what's going on in this story? Well, first of all, Jesus, again, his disappointment is settled on a couple different things. First of all, it's settled on miraculous signs and wonders. See, he's really disappointed. Now, get this. He's really disappointed that the Galileans lumps the royal official in with the rest of them. He's really, really disappointed that unless they see, crucial, unless they see miraculous signs and wonders, they will not believe. Uh, I might ask you if you know what the uh, purpose of a miraculous sign and a miraculous uh, or a wonder is. Wonder is probably pretty, uh, pretty easy to understand. It's something that makes you go, wow. That's something that Jesus does. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost shock value. It's, I don't believe my eyes. It's rubbing them and going, are you kidding me? That really happened? Kind of when, well, kind of when Jesus walks across the water, I would have done that for certain. When Jesus walks up to this grave and says, hey, roll away the stone. Lazarus, get on out here. And Lazarus walks out. I went, you've got to be kidding me. See, that, that's a wonder. That's a wow. That's, I don't believe this. That's, whoa. That's impressive. I can see you're impressed. See, that's what that is. That's what a wonder is. But a sign, now a sign is something different. A sign is not focused on. It's a miracle. And it's wow. And it's wonderful. And it's, it, it, it blows your mind, a word for my generation. I mean, it's really, really jolting, a, 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 a miraculous sign is. But a sign is significant. When he uses the word sign, he's not focused on the wow of the miracle. He's focused on the significance of the miracle. Again, we looked at this in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the very first night that I preached last week sometime. We looked at that the first night. And Jesus walks into this wedding at Cana, and there's all kinds of things that are taking place. You have the disciples who are there. He's been invited to this wedding, and we all know what that's like. You get a card in the mail, and he's done that, and he sent it back, and he and 12 guys show up, and he comes in, find out there's this big problem. They don't have enough wine. And you know how it is, never enough wine at weddings. And so he gets lassoed into this problem. Mother is involved in this problem now, and she pulls him into this whole situation. She pulls him into this problem, and she, uh, he's kind of hesitant about that. But she releases all these servants she's gathered into his hands. And the first thing that he does, supposed to be dealing with the wine, the first thing he does is has them deal with something that has nothing to do with the wine. He says, hey, you see those ceremonial washing jars? That's significant. He said, fill them with water. Long journey, they do so. He says, take some out, take to the master of the banquet. They do so. Not in the label, not with glasses. You don't use that for drinking water. And this miracle, is, it's all of a sudden revealed that Jesus has changed water into wine. The big deal is not about the wine. The big deal is that he's chosen to use ceremonial washing jars. 
And at the end of that story, he doesn't explain anything. He says this was the first, verse first one, of all of his miraculous signs. This is the first one. And his disciples put their faith in him. So this was a significant event. The significant part of this story was not on the wine. The significant part of the story is that he chose to put wine in ceremonial washing jars, which shut down the old covenant practices of uh, traditions of the law. It shut down being ceremonially clean. But would that make sense to us? Because uh, the way we are ceremonially clean, is it through ceremonial washing? No. How are we ceremonially clean? Blood of Jesus. So the significant part of that miracle was focused on Jesus' time, and he's the fulfillment of that sign. It wasn't focused on the miraculous. In fact, Jesus never even showed how he did it. He didn't talk about how he did it. He didn't do this. Well, he might have done that, but we don't know. It's the same thing in our passage in John chapter 4. It does not say, it does not say how the boy was healed. The author does not give us any... Are you listening to me? See, the author does not give us any, any details about that. He doesn't tell us how he does it. Doesn't say if he took his hand and went... Doesn't say if he said a silent prayer. See, he doesn't give us any of those details. The significance is not on the miracle. The significance is on the sign. This is a sign. That's what a sign is. Which signs are about significant events which lead to faith in Jesus. One, two. Easy to talk about signs. They're significant events, not focused on the miracle, that are lead to faith and trust in Jesus. That's what a sign is. And to save you from flipping around in your Bibles, I copied just a few, and there's several in the Gospel of John. But signs are meant to evoke belief in Jesus. I'll give you a couple of them. This is in John chapter 7. In response to what Jesus had been doing in the temple, it says they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? So the people believe in Jesus and they say, hey, why are we believing in Jesus? When the Christ comes, is he going to do more miraculous signs than this guy is doing? Is he going to do more significant events? Is he going to teach us more about the Old Testament law? Is he going to reveal that he's a fulfillment? I mean, it's when the Christ comes, if it's not this guy, is he going to do more than this guy? I don't think so. And so they believe in Jesus. That was one in chapter 7. In chapter 12, this is what the author writes. Even after Jesus had done all these signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And then he adds, this was to fulfill the word of the Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the, the arm of the Lord been revealed? The author himself says in this verse that the point of the signs is to evoke belief in Jesus. And then, of course, John, at the very end of his book, in chapter 20, verse 31, says, These things are written. All the things that I've been writing, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, have life in His name. That's why I'm writing. That's why I'm telling you all these stories. So the whole point now, that's a long journey to tell you this. The whole point, oh, get this, of miraculous signs, of the significant events that point to Jesus, is that you might have faith, you might have trust in the one who's doing them. And those have been done time and time again in front of the Galileans. But what Jesus says, now listen to His voice. Unless you people see signs and uh, wonders, miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Which means, this, see, the signs and the wonders were, produce, uh, were to produce belief. But the Galileans continually needed signs and wonders every single time. Now let me give you an example of this. 
Uh, I want you to flip just one page over to chapter 6. Jesus is arguing again with this group. And of course the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. They try to make him king. You know what happens. Jesus tells his disciples to get into the boat. They sail out. He runs up the side of a mountain, hides out overnight. In the middle of the night, he creeps down, walks across the water, scares the disciples half to death. But then Peter gets out, almost drowns. Jesus cries and throws him in the boat. He gets in, and then he goes to the other side of the lake. He winds up in, uh, I think it's Capernaum. Yeah, Capernaum, and he goes into the synagogue. He's teaching and preaching. The guys, the, the people who are on that side of the lake, now this is really neat, on that side of the lake, they're looking for Jesus. And you understand there's 5,000 of them. And they didn't have a luxury cruise liner, probably. Love boat wasn't parked over there on the shore somewhere. These were fishermen. And the text tells us, listen to this, get this in your mind. Uh, it's actually at verse 24. Once the crowd, chapter 6, verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into boats and went to Capernaum in search for Jesus. 5,000 people. Got some fishing boats. Average fishing boat held probably between 7 and 15 people. It's a lot of boats. Can you see Jesus and his disciples coming out of the synagogue and you have this great armada of ships coming across the Sea of Galilee? And they're going, hey, there he is. Yeah, I thought that was neat too. See, that's what happens here. So they found him on the other side of the lake is what verse 25 says. And listen to the first thing that Jesus says. Note, Jesus is running from them. He runs from them. They're referring to him as rabbi. Listen to what happens. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher. It means teacher. Rabbi, teacher. And a, and a, and a teacher or a rabbi's students were called Disciples. Or learners. That's what they were called. So they get out and they say, Hey, Rabbi! Which they means they refer to themselves as disciples. Hey, when did you get here? They're looking for you. It's breakfast. <laughs> Probably what they're thinking. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus cuts to the chase as he always does. I tell you the truth, verse 26. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and your bellies are full. That's why you're searching for me. And of course he goes on to the spill about don't work for food. You're missing it. You're focused on the wrong thing. You're searching and following me after things that I can do for you. Are you listening to me? You're searching for me for things that I can do for you and not for who I am. You don't value me. You don't honor me. You're missing the point of who I am. Powerful. And of course they get in this big argument. And you know what they say? Listen to what they say in verse 30. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? The biggest fault with the Galileans is that their faith always, always had to have, and I, I kind of gave it a little deal here, is a uh, condition. Hey, we'll believe if you show the way. Hey, we'll believe if you prove yourself. Hey, we want to believe, and hey, that sounds really good, but what miraculous sign are you going to do? And by the way, in that passage, immediately they tell what kind of sign they want. They say, for instance, Moses, uh, Moses gave, gave us bread in the desert. 
some bread would be good about right now. What do you think? Some breakfast anyway. <laughs> what are they looking for? You know what happens? Most of the time when we really cry out to God in earnest, why is it? My car broke down. <laughs> My kid's sick. My wife is sick. I'm in danger. I pray to you, oh big credit card in the sky. <laughs> I need you. That's that group. And every time God calls, every time God reveals His plan, every time God, through Jesus, says, hey, this is the way I'm going, they say, well, I'm going to have to see it first. That is not, just as a side note, and I'm not trying to be too aggressive here, but if that is your style of walking with God, you're in trouble. Because I don't know where I'm going majority of the time. I'm so lost. Friends of mine call me irresponsible. I say, no, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going. I have no, I have, half the time, I don't have any idea what he's doing even in a service, which is scary because I'm preaching. But he doesn't let me in on his plan. Does that make sense? And if we stand for him, and, he, and we stand in front of him, if we're living for him, are you listening to me, teenager? And he reveals the pattern of your life, and he reveals the direction of your life, and we stand and say, hey, I need to know for sure. I need you to show me. I need to see the outcome first. Guess who we just become like? The Galileans. That's what's going on in our story. Jesus looks at them and says, hey, you should be believing and trusting by now. You should be believing and trusting by now. Unless you see miraculous signs, unless I do a miracle, you'll never believe. In the other Gospels, he says, this wicked generation will not be given a sign or a miracle except for the sign of Jonah. Three days in the belly of a well. I'm going to be dead and I'm going to raise again. That's the sign. And that's the only one you're getting. That's all that he says to them. So that's what he says to the Galileans. And then in contrast to that, half over, just in case you want to know. In contrast to them, in the midst of the scene, in the midst of the frustration with the Galileans, ah, oh, it's good truth, because it's so aggressive, you have this royal official showing up. He's probably interrupting their whole gig. He comes probably, fancy clothes, walks in the middle of that scene, interrupts all that's going on, Keeps getting in the way of Jesus, standing in front of him, won't let him get by, and says, Hey, my kid's sick, I want you to come healing. Jesus is going this way, Capernaum's probably that way. He walks around the man, the man gets back in front of him and says, Hey, we're talking to you, just I need you to come heal my son. Jesus expresses his disappointment to the Galileans. The guy says, I don't care, I want my kid healed. And Jesus says, Go, your son lives. And you're expecting this man to go, Are you, are, are you sure? Can you prove it to me? Would you at least come? And then if he's not, you can touch him for sure. That's what you're expecting. That's what I would have said. Go, your son lives. Listen to what the guy says. The man took him at his word. No condition. Folks, there's no condition there. The man took him at his word. But what is so phenomenal, and I, I want this to hit home in us tonight... When you take Jesus at His word with no condition, He will confirm it to you because it's either condition or confirmation. And He does confirm it to this man. 
Look what happens. He walks, he takes off, he meets his servant. Servant meets with him in verse 51. Verse 52, when he inquired as the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Verse 53, this is the deal. Then the father realized that this was the exact time what Jesus had said to him, your son will live. He wasn't coming to be a believer. But what did he leave as? But not only him. So he, not only he, but who else? Did you know that in this day, his entire household wasn't just family members. It was everyone under your house, under your uh, authority, under your influence. In the name of Jesus, troubles will come in your life. How are you going to respond? How are you going to lean on him? If you demand answers, he may give them to you. But if you lean to him and say, I trust you at your word. The benefits of that is everyone in your household, everyone that you would influence becomes a believer. Teachers live like this. Live like this in the middle of your classroom. We need help with this. I said this once already. Uh, My father and I had a horrible relationship. He was a jerk. I don't know how else to say it was not a very good father. He was mean and abusive. Yeah. We were from the bad end of town. And I don't know what names you normally give for those kind of people. Hicks. But we weren't, we're in the city. <laughs> Just worthless people. My mom and dad used to fist fight. We all used to fight like that. And my dad was abusive. Very abusive. And I couldn't stand him. Later on in his life, though, Jesus got a hold of that man. And he got a hold of him through a fight that my dad got into. He got in a fight with a guy, and my dad was tough. Boy, he was tough. But he met someone who was a little tougher than him, which always happens. And he beat my dad up pretty bad, kicked him in the head a couple of times, broke his brain stem. And didn't hurt him. Like, it, 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 they found him in a ditch, and... And it hurt him then, but he got better, but it had lasting effects for the rest of his life. And it damaged his brain so that part, it just slowly deteriorated and parts of his body began to shut down. It was in that period of nine months when he was first injured that he came to know Jesus. God got a hold of him. God put him in a place where he could finally talk to him. I pray for that. I pray for you and I, everyone in this room, that he brings us to that point. It's pretty pathetic watching my dad go to a nursing home at the age of 44. He didn't belong in there. And what was worse is my dad was believing in Jesus. He had become a missionary slightly before this. He was going over to Venezuela, man. He was preaching. He was building houses. He was, he was living in Winchester, Indiana, going door to door, knocking on the door saying, Do you know Jesus? Wow, let me come in. No, I'm coming in anyway. I'm telling you about Jesus. And then they go in and, and I mean, he loved the socks off people. And I had, I had dreams of knowing a dad like that. I had dreams of my kids being able to look at him, look at Grandpa, and, 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 and knowing the story of his conversion and seeing the Jesus in the back of his eyes. And when my dad died, I struggled with God. And that is not a lack of entire sanctification, or I've heard all kinds of garbage about that kind of stuff. I struggled with that. I struggled with that. 
This passage calls me and says, Jeremiah, do you trust me? See, it's really easy for us to trust God until you get cancer. My best friend, one of my best friends and his wife tried and tried and tried and tried to get pregnant. Never, doctor said they never would. They finally got pregnant. The whole church rejoiced. They had a baby who was born with so many problems. The doctors even almost suggested abortion as it began in the 7th or 8th eight, or ninth month. They stuck with it and had it. It requires 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, medical observation. They live with a nurse and have to pay for that. And I don't know how you would re respond to that. I watch how he's serving Jesus. He's a youth pastor. But I have dreams about who my kids are going to be and what they're going to look like and where they're going to go. What if my dreams for my kids don't look like his dreams for my kids? I don't think Jesus personally did that to the kid. I don't believe that. But could it be that he chose for that baby to be in their home? Would I be okay with that? When you see, the, when you see your future, the destiny of your life and your dreams and your hopes and your aspirations begin to change right before you are, your eyes, do you trust him? Last one from me, and then you're going to have to come up with your own. I played basketball for the United States Marine Corps. I was good. I was 6'4", about 170. I was thin, but I could jump out of the gym. I, I played point guard. I had, my coach was, uh, played on the Puerto Rican pro team, which is like an ABA league. It's the league right below uh, the NBA where guys like Tony Kukoc, Stojakovic, those boys came from. He, was, he, was, he, he had coached on that team. He played on that team. He was my ticket. I was going there after I graduated. I used to be able to get my nose above the rim. And I broke my leg. And I was so angry at God. I was so mad at Him. How in the world could He let that happen? I had a jump shot. I, I, I could play, man. I was fast. I, how in the world could He let that happen? Could it be that Jesus did not design my body to play basketball? He designed my body to preach? Do you trust Him? I mean, when it really comes down, and I don't want any really religious answers type of stuff. I don't want any flimsy, hollow type of testimonial stuff. I'm talking about when the rubber meets the road and you're in the, you're in the face of despair, do you trust Him? When you're dating a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your daughter or son is dating a, a guy or a girl, do you have reckless, abandoned trust in Him with them? Teens, when you meet someone who makes your heart go and Jesus speaks to you and says not this one do you trust him no pressure if you don't but you won't look like the royal official see this is what he's called me to look like Jeremiah Bullock do I trust him do I trust him with my wife do I trust Him with my kids? Do I trust Him in the most intimate areas of my life? Do I trust Him to walk after Him and trust that, he's no, that He knows best? When my life falls apart and I'm watching my dad 
and I've got my dreams and my hopes and my aspirations and my future. Do you stand there? And I'm not going to tell you that was a piece of cake, man. I fought tooth and nail with him on that every day. But at the end of the day, can you look at him and say, hey, I don't like this. I don't like what I'm seeing. But I trust you. Because as these prophets have spoken, I can't run with horses. And I don't know the outcome of my life. Are you trusting him like that? Is he talking to you about areas of your life this week? Has he talked with you about areas of your life this week that you have struggled with? Would you trust him? I mean, would you really plain flat come down to it, trust him? You can have all the right doctrine and all the right phrases and all the right things that you do and miss it because of this one thing. In fact, I'm almost convinced that you can have wrong doctrine and this will get you through because the disciples had wrong doctrine. When he died, they went fishing. Said, I thought he was the one. In the New Testament, you find Paul correcting the disciples from time to time. But they trusted him. They leaned on him. By the looks of your faces, I'm not, I'm not sure if you follow me this evening. I want to ask you. It's Friday. <laughs> I've seen several of your faces every night. And you've sat up here and listened to us preach. And I've stared right in, the, right in your eyes every, every, every day this week, teens. When it really comes down to it, do you trust Him? Are you listening to me or are you talking? Do you trust Him? Do you have confidence in Him? Are you walking hand in hand with Him? Is there an intimacy that you share with Him that when it really comes down to it, hey, I believe. Hey, I trust. Because there are going to come issues and there are going to come circumstances and there are going to be things that happen in our life that are going to shake everything else that we can stand on. And nothing else is going to turn out right. And all you're going to have is, hey, I know he was going this way the last time I could see. Hey, I, I, I'm leaning on him. We're going we're gonna to sing and worship him. And I know we've had an altar call nearly every single service this week. And I don't know how that affects you. One last thing. I don't know if any of you struggle with pornography here. I don't know if any of you struggle with alcohol abuse here. I don't know if you struggle with whatever, whatever it is. God sees them all the same. You understand that, right? Shake your heads. People in the church sometimes make a bigger deal about one sin than the other. But they all come back to leaning on something else beside Him. And it's dangerous for you to take your sex drive and put it in the hands of Jesus. And say, I'm not, I'm not going to fulfill myself anymore. I'm not going to take my life in my own hands anymore. I'm going to trust you with that. I'm going to trust you with alcohol. See, alcohol deadens pain. 
You understand that? Drugs deaden pain. They bring fulfillment and happiness in a way that other things do not. If Jesus is dealing about an, dealing with you in an area of your life, would you trust Him? The Scriptures tell us that He says, try me on this. Test me on this one. Test me and see that I'm good. Test me and know that I know, I know what I'm talking about. That I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. That I know what's best for you. Would you trust Him on this? Would you step out and respond? See, that's where life is. See, well, that's what this thing is about. That's what this deal is. It's learning to walk in intimacy and trust with Him. And in the midst of walking in intimacy with, and trust with Him, trusting Him without seeing, trusting Him without seeing the end, in the midst of walking in, the, in that deal, God is going to use you in your circumstance and it's going to affect everyone in your household. If your son or daughter is not saved, live like that in front of them for a while. If your neighbor is not saved, walking out and telling them how they're going to hell is probably not going to change their life. And I'd be surprised if inviting them to camp meeting is going to change their life. Invite them to camp meeting. What's going to change their life is day in and day out, they see you walking to work like this. That's what changed my life. Are you walking like that? Man, I want that for you. Father, we love you this evening. Uh, thank you so much for the truth of your word.